Okay, we got the nest started. It's right here at four. So um let me get started. You guys ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, welcome everybody to Taking Stock. We're talking about what is a share today? And I'm so glad to uh, have um, Jack here with us. Um, Bibik and I will be looking forward to getting into a great discussion with him uh, all about uh, this pivotal and uh, base topic for investors in the market today. Uh, before we do, just to briefly touch on a couple of you know, DRS team updates, I want to um, share with everyone, I'm very excited to mention that the investor relations database, we've now broken past 27.5%, um, a great 2.5% jump, uh, a little bit more actually since last week. So that's wonderful to see. Uh, just a few short months away from really having this thing all together. And it's I think our, our auditing speed is getting faster. So we love helping out people with DRS. Uh, it's very exciting. And um, you know, hopefully more folks will stop by and uh, start to help out. We have those database parties every Sunday. Um, Vivek, what do you want to mention? Uh, I've been um, working on bits and bobs around. Uh, there was there was a project I mentioned a while ago called the Links of Ownership that I was working on, but it's kind of on the back burner because uh, we've had some lovely things to add for the podcast. We've got a new, well, for you know these space calls slash podcast. Um, we've got a new logo uh, brewing up in the lab, and I'm also working away on some intro, outro, kind of miscellaneous music that has been uh, kindly donated to us from uh, from a community favourite. So uh, you might hear some uh, some wooch music, kind of bringing us in and out of these episodes uh, in hopefully a week or so's time. Um, but uh, yeah just trying to find time for it around work as we all are. Um, so fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but I, just to quickly go back to the uh, database, I just wanted to try and get some context um, because two and a half percent doesn't sound like a lot, but there are like w w well over 10,000 companies in this database, right? That That's a great point. We should probably explain that a bit more that, as far as you know, individual tracked tickers on NYSE or NASDAQ, that well over 10,000 uh, in there. And so that 2.5% represents hundreds and hundreds of audited, newly available contact information for investors around the world. Huge. It's huge. It's good progress, too. Um, but yeah, I think that's everything for updates this week. We can uh, jump right into the meat of things. So I definitely want to introduce, you know, uh, Jack of Spades here. Um, in my opinion, a prolific, well-known, brilliant user throughout the community, throughout the different platforms that we have. Someone who's written a lot on a lot of different topics and uh, continually uh, just impresses me with uh, his, his wit and tact when it comes to discussing, well, often complicated uh, aspects of the market and being able to break them down. Uh, so thanks so much, Jack, again, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for that uh, introduction. So bef before we like officially begin, I figured I should just give a quick introduction of myself. Um, so I've been following GME since November, before the sneeze, and then I've gotten hooked ever since. 
And the areas I'm most interested in exploring are market mechanics, voting, taxes, and financial engineering. And I even helped craft one of the first YDRS comment letters, which was about voting rights, which is essentially going to be our topic for today. So I prepared some slides uh, for today, and they're part of a larger presentation, but we're going to go through a few sections today. And if I'm invited back, we'll, we'll continue the conversation. So, wonderful. sorry, say that again. Oh, I was just saying wonderful. And I, I wouldn't worry about uh, not being invited back to get to the rest of these ideas. <laughs> cool. Well, j just to tease it, my goal is to go through a few topics and then reframe it under accounting rules, which is a way we don't really talk about things. But that, that will come in future episodes. So for today, we're going to really focus on two big questions. And the, the big questions are, if I have Apple in my brokerage account, am I the owner of those shares? And then the second question is, is one share one vote honored? And feel free to ask me questions along the way. If you guys have questions after the fact, feel free to reach out to me. Happy, happy to clarify where possible. So we can skip to the first like real slide that talks about like what is a share. And I know Chives, you put some stuff on Imgur earlier today. So if people have that, they can certainly follow that. Okay, so what is a share? So a share is comprised of two parts. There's the economic value and there's the voting rights. And for the most part, um, that's not really how people are taught about what a share is. The way, the way a share is discussed is really only the economic aspect of a share is advertised. You buy and sell a share. When you do so, you're economically made whole. Everything seems fine. What I'm going to do through the course of, of the rest of this conversation is say, no, there's way more to a share. And voting rights is a perfect way to look at it. And I highly encourage you to start thinking of a share comprised of two parts, because once you think of it that way, you start to see where abuse can happen and you really see the value of why you should be RS. So there are multiple ways to hold the share. And the two main ways to hold a share are you can be the record holder or you can be the beneficial owner. And record holders are the legal owners of shares. Record holders have full economic value and full voting rights. Beneficial owners, on the other hand, have full economic value and some amount of voting rights. And this is a very important point. People think they vote their beneficial shares, but they have no way to really know. In fact, it's actually a known phenomenon that overvoting some type of reconciliation adjustment happens. And effectively, as a result, the U.S. can't guarantee one share one vote. And this is why I say that voting is the perfect argument that shows a flaw of shorting within the U.S. market. And just to take this slightly further, um, when you have shares beneficially, i.e. with a broker, you're really trading what's known as security entitlements. And I'm sure you've heard people say that there are more shares than there should be. I used to say that too, and I've, cha I've changed the phrase, and it's really there are more security entitlements than shares. And we'll, we'll get into this in, in a little bit. So this, this right here, this is a really good, solid one-page overview of uh, voting rights. Uh, and also there's a quote on here, which I'm gonna read, and then I'm gonna read additional citations as we go along. But th this should really show how, how um, abusive shorting can be. So the quote is, it's as a consequence, and it's as a consequence of shorting. 
So as a consequence, it's not possible for all beneficial owners of such a stock to exercise a proxy vote in full proportion to their beneficial ownership. All that this sentence is, is saying one share, one vote can't be honored. So I'm going to go through, we can go through the next slide as well. And here's some additional voting citations. And these are really powerful statements. They're from a U.S. government document. Um, I'm just going to read them in order. So the first one is short sales of equity shares generally have the effect of increasing the total number of shares that a company's stock owned beneficially by investors. So we're increasing shares is what that says. Second one, as a consequence, the short sale creates a situation in which the total number of shares owned beneficially by investors exceeds the number of shares issued by the issuing corporation. Very similar statement. And then the third one, this was more, this is a concept that Patrick Byrne has said in the past, and I just thought it would be cool to, to share it here. Um, it's really the bolded piece, but the result of such short selling and securities lending in the aggregate is that brokers as a group do not hold record ownership of as many shares of such stock as they and their customers own beneficially. This may be described as a situation of fractional reserve brokerage. And that's what Patrick Byrne talks about if you've ever seen some of his uh, older videos. So then moving on, that's the, that's the, that's the US government in, in its government capacity. What about some people at the SEC? So on the next slide is a quote from a uh, SEC director. And he's gonna talk about security entitlements. And what he says is he says, consequently, there are no specific shares directly owned by either the broker participants of the DTC or the underlying beneficial owner. As a result, a beneficial owner's ownership cannot be tracked to specific shares, but rather its ownership interest is represented as a securities entitlement at his or her broker dealer. And then th this is the big statement. Each of these beneficial owners don't own the actual shares credited to their accounts, but rather they own a bundle of rights defined by federal and state law by contract with their broker. Consequently, a beneficial owner may not have the right to vote the securities credited to his or her account. So first we had the U.S. government talking about how one share, one vote can't be honored. Now we have the SEC talking about how um, you have rights or don't have rights when you beneficially own shares. I threw in a slide. We're not really going to talk about it, but just in case you're curious, one share, one vote has been a concept since 1926 with the New York Stock Exchange. But now I want, to, I want to show a mathematical example to illustrate what's happening. And we, we have two very similar examples that start with there's a company and they've issued 100 shares. So on the left-hand side, uh, person one and person two have each bought 50 shares. In total, they have 100 shares. That 100 shares equals the 100 shares that's been issued by the company. One share, one vote is honored all the time. If you now compare that to the right-hand side, you have person one, person two, and person four each buying 50 shares. Person three is shorting 50 shares. The net result is person one, two, and four have 150 shares, which is greater than the 100 shares issued by the company. As a result, one share, one vote can't be honored. How they reconcile, and what I mean by that is how they take the 150 votes to 100 votes is completely up in the air. They can randomly throw out votes. They can say no margin, anything they really want. And I'm not really going to go into detail on this, but feel free. There's a link at the bottom of the page. It's a comment letter from an accounting firm, I believe. 
and they talk about various methods of reconciliation. And just so you know, some reconciliation methods are less favorable to retail traders. So that's our math example. But what does maybe an insider say like Broadridge? And I have a quote from them. In one of their comment letters, they say, there can be isolated voting discrepancies when there is a disconnect between a stock record and a voting entitlement. To me, that's clear as day. Broadridge is saying there absolutely can be one share, one vote not honored. So that that's fine. But what if what if I could show you guys a real example? And I think this is a really cool one. So there's this awesome article by Bob Drummond. And I'm going to read two quotes from there. So the first one is, it's from a CEO of a uh, registrar and transfer company. And they're talking about elections. And he says, it's an abomination. A lot of the time, we have no idea who's entitled to vote and who isn't. It's nothing short of criminal. And now we get to a real example. So another um, example is the Securities Transfer Association, which is a association of transfer agents. They reviewed 341 shareholder votes in corporate contests in 2005. And they found evidence of overvoting, which would be the submission of too many ballots in all 341 cases. That's a pretty crazy statement there, but I'm gonna say it a slightly different way. In 341 examples looked at, they found one share, one vote was not honored 100% of the time. So up until now, we've basically shown that one share, one vote can't be honored. And that's a statement, but is that, is that a problem? What are the negatives of that? And in the beginning, I said that a share was the economic aspect and the voting aspect. It turns out that you can decouple those two things and some very interesting implications happen. So you could effectively reduce a portion of the economic value and have full voting rights. That's what's known as empty voting. And really the takeaway is you can just reduce or increase one aspect of what a share is. So you yourself are no longer honoring one share, one vote. And this can be done with uh, derivatives or options, swaps, what have you. It can also be done with uh, regular shares. And when, when we get to taxes, when I talk about that at a later date, there's a huge intersection between uh, tax minimization strategies and voting right implications. So if you were to shed your economic risk, but had full voting rights, what incentives would drive your, your voting decisions? I'm just saying that slightly differently, if you shed your economic risk entirely, the stock moving up and down is meaningless. And that when I started learning that, that's when I really saw how easy it was for voting abuse to happen. So the quote here on this page, this is really just saying you can decouple um, the economic and the voting rights. On the next slide, though, are two examples of this happening. And it's from the same paper. And the first example is Mylan Laboratories was going to acquire this other company called Kangoo. And there was this hedge fund manager. I think his name was Perry. And I'm just going to read the bolded section. But basically, Perry thus had a 9.9% voting ownership of Milan, but zero economic ownership. So that, that's empty voting, including its position in King. 
Perry's overall economic interest in Milan was negative. The more Milan overpaid for King, the more Perry stood for profit. Saying this just slightly different, the way that Perry was going to vote wasn't necessarily aligned with the other longs. It was in for the other longs, it was in their best interest to pay as little to acquire the company. But for him, he wanted to go for as much money as possible. So that can show you some perverse incentives that come from decoupling the economic ownership and the voting rights. And then the last example, this is more really just to highlight that this is a thing. But um, basically, you can borrow shares just before the record date and, and then use those to vote. And this is known as record date capture. So that, that actually concludes the, the section on voting and, and, and voting rights. So Chives, I don't know if we want to take any questions or if you have some questions you want to ask or if you want to go into certain areas a little bit more that maybe were uh, unclear. Appreciate that. And th that is such an incredible high-level overview of not only this issue, but how it's been transcribed and noted over a century, practically. Uh, what I would love to do is just kind of, I guess, because that was, of course, a lot of very dense information. So let me just follow along and make sure that I am properly understanding. It sounds as though the first thing you'd mentioned, of course, folks don't think about voting rights and shareholder democracy very much when they're getting invested. The ethos around the stock market is so often about, you know, how can you turn some money today into more money tomorrow or next month or next year? And it sounds like that conversation has made a, a bunch of habits in investors where they're not even prepared to think about a lot of the consequences of uh, this decoupling that you were bringing up. I'm most fascinated by this idea that a investor could, through the you know, through some tricks using derivatives or otherwise, uh, where they can actually have a negative, uh, you know, an interest in the company performing poorly, a negative economic interest, but still have a large amount of voting rights. That sounds extremely dangerous. And then you've got a, you know, a situation where a company could be doing its very best, but has through, you know, the democratic process, you know, choices are being made, which would actually be worse for that company overall, probably outside of the ability for other investors to even see or think about it. Is that right? Yes, to everything you said. And just to add, as long as reporting isn't super transparent, it's harder to police this. And I I can't remember, I might be thinking of something else. I think the SEC actually looked into this Milan example. Um, but if we don't have transparent reporting, they'll figure out ways to, to hide their votes and, and their true ownership. And speaking on a little more, a little bit more on that, I was also I, I want to talk a bit more about that truncation process uh, that you'd mentioned. So just to kind of review, three hundred and forty one different examples were studied um, about you know what in two thousand and five by the STA, and you know that's a that's a familiar organization. Um, you know a lot of big transfer agents are a part of that. Interested, of course, in proper disclosure and making sure that votes can be cast properly. That's their job, of course, for the issuers. But in every single case, 
there's overvoting. Uh, now, of course, shorting is a normal market mechanic, but in your example, you're showing that even just the act of, of basic shorting uh, can potentially cause this kind of trouble. Now, is that correct, or is this a like a naked shorting only issue? I, I'm curious, first of all. It's an any shorting issue. So it's, it's a re- really, it's really good question, good, good point to clarify. So any shorting does this. So in a perfect world, if you short, you should not, and, and, and sorry, if you loaned your shares, you should not be voting on those anymore. However, the the brokerages don't don't have a, a good enough sense of that. So effectively what they do is they could send um, proxy votes to everyone, and then when they get it back, they decide who they're going to throw out. So it, it, it's anything can happen. So to kind of follow up on that a bit more, it sounds as though because brokers sort of hold in an aggregate, you know, it's it's uh, a bit like how a bank has, um, you know, everyone's fiat in an aggregate and is, you know, I, like, uh, I liked Burns' idea there of fractional reserve uh, investing or, or what he'd said there. Uh, in some ways, because of, of that, they're accepting, you know, the business of uh, facilitating a short sale when they need to for a retail investor, but not always handling uh, that back-end paperwork correctly, or it's not disclosed whether or not they're handling it correctly? Is that the idea? We know the problem's on the other side. We just don't know where the breakdown is in the system. I think that's a good way to say it. We, we just don't have enough visibility. And I, this is a good segue into like settlement and FTDs when we get there, because there, there's clearly an intersection. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I'm curious to hear more about that very soon. Uh, absolutely. Um, one other point I wanted to make when you were talking about how shorting effectively increases the, the share count. If you remember when GameStop squeezed or sneezed and Ivor from S3 changed the formulas, he said something along the lines of every short creates a synthetic long. That's effectively what I'm saying. Every short is increasing the total shares. Well, I suppose, especially considering we've got this, you know, T plus two, soon to be T plus one environment. Of course, we're getting into the settlement idea now, but a short can be, you know, uh, facilitated and sold before the the lender may actually need to deliver to the borrower. Um, At least as that's my, I'm sure we're going to get more into that very soon. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Vivek, is there anything you wanted to touch on a bit more from this first section? I think you guys covered a lot of it. Um, like I can chime in with my own experience with voting, uh, which I think I've brought up before. Um, like back in 2021, I tried to vote my shares at, at GameStop's annual meeting uh, and I wasn't able to with a single broker. So uh, I was like, oh, okay, they'll probably, they won't have much of a turnout then if me and probably the majority of Europe and other international investors can not even vote. Uh, but they had a 95% turnout, voter turnout. So I don't know how that adds up, but this seems to be quite common. Um, they'll have record turnouts, like very high percentage turnouts, when the vast majority of the investing world are people like me who don't have access to proxy voting or people who hold through retirement accounts, which also don't have the same access to voting yet. 
we're getting almost a full turnout. Um, that in itself speaks a lot, I think. Um, obviously, we can't see exactly where the votes are coming from and how they're being truncated. Um, and it's why, like, yeah, I was so pleased when I directly registered my shares. I was able to vote immediately. There was no issue with, like, how many shares were counted because I'm a record owner or record holder. So I'm first in the queue along with all the other record holders. And then CD and Co get to vote their remaining shares. Um, but, yeah, there are so many ways where this kind of dilution can happen, it seems, like like you're talking about shorting, but there's also borrowing just to fulfill uh, a long holding temporarily, as well as uh, size improvement that market makers such as Virtue offer, where if you want to buy a thousand shares of a particular stock um, and they only have 200 shares, they'll give you, they'll sell you a thousand shares, even though 800 do not exist. So these kind of overlaps of um, bookkeeping seems to be ripe for abuse um and i think that's what we see a lot with yeah with when it comes to voting um because yeah it's such a black box we don't know how oversold uh or diluted any particular company is i actually wanted to piggyback off of that and just ask you jack a bit more about this idea of persons you know your example with persons a a and b you know, each buying 50 shares and one share, one vote being able to be honored. And then the more realistic example of A, B, and D, uh, each having 150 shares total, you know, uh, and the company only has 100 issued shares. So in a case like that, I'm just curious to know um, if they all share the same broker and that broker collects all those votes, are you aware that the broker then decides um, what kind of policies they need to follow? Uh, are we aware of to choose which out of those hundred votes to submit? And would they, do you think, hypothetically, if the broker as a private business has an economic interest in or a social interest in the vote going some certain way, is that going to potentially impact which of the votes they choose to submit to the transfer agent? Yes to everything you said, um, but I, I'm going to say it even slightly further. At the end of the day, you're a beneficial owner. You don't vote. Record holders vote. Record holders are the final votes. They maybe should pass along your vote, but nothing is guaranteeing that's happening. And there are examples of that that have occurred in the past. But go, going back to your scenario, let's just pretend they're going to randomly throw out votes. They could say everyone who bought the shares on margin, we're throwing them out. They can just say we're going to treat everyone equal and we're going to normalize them down. They could say maybe people with an account of a certain size are who we're going to keep first. It's an absolute crapshoot. And do, all, all do I can they say disclose is, which rule they're going to follow? Do you know? How, oh, like, so they don't. Um, what I remember reading is. In 2010, some they, they I think I think in the 90s actually they they the government suggested that they disclose that. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Um, you can contact your broker and ask them, but you might not get an answer. Uh, I'm almost positive I asked TD Ameritrade, and they didn't know what I meant. I basically said, 
do you guys do pre-reconciliation or post-reconciliation? They didn't know what I meant. I clarified what that was. And then I believe they came back and said they do post-reconciliation. And just so you know, post-reconciliation is less favorable to retail, according to the the uh, article I said. So it sounds like it's really more of a consultation when they're asking for your preferences when it comes to a proxy vote. Ultimately, that's something they can choose or choose not to impact the how the votes are cast. That That's exactly how I read into it. You, you could, of course, say, oh, they'll be fair and they'll honor it. But nothing is really forcing them to do that. And, th- and that's a really important thing. And it goes back to you're not the legal owners of those shares. Yeah, right. And obviously, you know, here on the you know the DRS focused taking stock, uh, it's worth digging into that if you want to guarantee uh, that your vote is not only cast but counted, then becoming a named record holder and a title holder of those uh, of those shares directly on the issuer's ledger is that uh, the only way to guarantee it? Are there other ways that investors can make sure that their votes will be cast? I'm not as familiar. I believe there's another way, and I'm not as familiar with this, but I think you can request... um, I think there's a way to request voting from your broker where they send you some... um, One of you might have to chime in on this. But I think they send you something, and then it can be certified as a vote. But I am not very familiar with that. Yeah, I, I, I believe it exists, second. but I I would need to learn learn more. I I will. I know that we had. A, I saw a user cats and branches did some great research on that. I, I will. Think need, so. Yep. I'll see if I can dig that back up because I definitely would want to include that uh, in the show notes. But sounds like we're not not able to speak on it directly. But I believe there is another way. But that involves, of course, going through the red tape and uh, request process with your broker of choice. And uh, conversely, it'd be much simpler, probably, to vote directly with uh, your issuer and with their transaction. Absolutely, and I know I know. Right now, we're really only talking about voting rights, but there are other perks to being a record holder. Oh, yes. Uh, so I, I think that, that we've covered some great ground there. I would love to get into the um, the settlement topic, unless there's anything else you wanted to touch on. No, no, I'm, I'm good. Let's go to settlement. I think um, one thing that I, I just want to highlight before we move on, uh, and I'm sure this will come up again, it's just the glaring difference between an entitlement versus a guarantee, because... Uh, you can be all entitled to your votes all day long. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. Um, whereas being a legal owner of your shares, you will guaranteed that vote and you're guaranteed the delivery of that share, which again, with brokers, all, all they're beholden to is their record keeping, which also they're not great at, as we've seen from the multiple lawsuits, uh, which they settle outside of court. Mm-hmm. Um so it's just, uh, I think it's worth bearing in mind for, for the wider community just to think, okay, as, as an entitlement is just that. It's not it's not a guarantee of anything. It just means you are entitled to the economic value of, of whatever asset you're trying to get. Um, there are no guarantees. Exactly. And 
an, another way to think about it is if you were in the Delaware courts and they were settling something, if you were a beneficial owner, are you the owners of those shares? And Delaware is going to say no. Only the record holders are. That's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. And an entitlement is not legally recognized as ownership. Correct. It's, <laughs> and it's this kind of stuff they're very quiet about when you're registering up at a brokerage. They're like, yeah, get involved, get invested, hold stocks long term. It's good for you. And uh, and then they take your money and give you an IOU. It's lovely. But uh, I, th- I think uh, on that note, anyway, we can uh, move on to settlement. Speaking okay. of IOUs. <laughs> okay, sure. <clears throat> so settle, we're going we're to talk about settlements and FTDs. And then in, in future talks, we're going to expand a little bit on FTDs, and in particular, the aging of FTDs and the threshold list. Um, but for today, we're going to really focus on continuous net settlement and sort of how good of a job does that do. So um, today, when you buy shares, the entity that sold you those shares is supposed to deliver them by what's known as T plus two, and that's today plus two business days or uh, T plus 35 if you're a market maker. Uh, and for the rest of this, I'm just going to say T plus two, but just know market makers also have that. And <clears throat> if it's not delivered by T plus two, then it's known as a failure to deliver uh, or an FTD. And just to call this out so it, it's out there and everyone knows it, market makers can FTD indefinitely, and they can also borrow for free. So every FTD has what's known as a corresponding failure to receive. And as mentioned earlier, FTDs impact voting reconciliation. Essentially, FTDs are increasing the total shares. So what this means is when today, when you buy a share and it looks like you instantly have it in your account, you may not. All you know for a fact is money was taken from your account and you were credited those shares. You do not know that they actually were delivered. So there's a program that's called uh, Continuous Net Settlement, or CNS, and it, its function is to net out all transactions, and it's touted as it's super efficient, it minimizes risk by, by reducing uh, the counterparties and, and the movement involved between the counterparties. But what it really does, in my eyes, is it masks challenges and resolves issues but resolve should be in quotes there because they kind of go with it. And the fungibility of shares is super important because effectively what continuous net settlement does is it anonymizes all the trades. So no one really knows what trade is from what, and we're going to see that come up in uh, a slide or two. So over the next few slides, I'm going to try to basically demonstrate the following. There's limited vis- visibility and the own firms have no idea what failed. The DTC says it's not their job to police, and the U.S. government knows there's a problem. So here's, our, here's the first one that I'm going to talk about, and this is from a comment letter that the North American Security Administrators Association had. And in the comment letter, they're talking about an uh, investigation that happened. And just to back up a second... When Overstock was uh, allegedly 
uh, um, abusively shorted. Um, eventually, the Utah Securities Agency, I can't remember the real name, got involved and decided they wanted to look into severance. So they, they opened up an investigation, and um, there, there, there's many interesting things in there, because this is one of the quotes that I wanted to show. So basically, the division reached out to 10 of the largest broker-dealers and was asking information about failures. And what they got back was this. They, those, those uh, broker-dealers, were unable to determine which trades had failed to settle because the continuous net settlement system did not report that any particular customers had failed to deliver. CNS reported only that they had. CNS reported only the firm's overall daily net positions. In addition, the firms told the division the D, that the DTCC, as the contraparty to the firm's net trades, is the only entity that would know which firms had failed to settle their transactions and whether buying was demanded. So, own firms have no idea what actually fails. That's the takeaway. So then we can transition to, to the next slide. And there's two quotes here. So the first one is from the NSCC. And this is in response to, I think it was an interview with Robert Shapiro. And basically they say, while making much of the fact that brokers don't enforce buy-ins, Euro Money, Euro Money was the ones interviewing uh, Robert Shapiro. Euro Money never reports the NSCC has no power to compel its members to buy in open positions. It's up to the brokers to determine whether to buy in. The NSCC is not a regulator, nor does it exercise enforcement powers. Those powers reside with the federal and market-based regulatory agencies. Okay. So DCC says it's not our job. And then the last quote is the U.S. government. And they basically say, present practice in clearing and settlement leads to substantial and persistent delivery delays in certain equity issues. And you can just read the rest of the quote. But at the very end, they say um, they say the, the data they got from the NSCC was showing substantial and persistent perceived fails in many NASDAQ issues in December 1990. So the takeaway is the government knows, the DTC says it's not their job to police, and own firms have no idea what uh, really fails. So that, that wraps up the section on settlement. I didn't, I didn't prepare a lot. So Chives, if you want to maybe ask some questions or prod a little bit more, I'm happy to go into more details. Well, I definitely really appreciate that. I, I want to just understand a bit more about the function of settlement within this, you know, the broader conversation of, you know, what is a share and then ultimately these, uh, the voting uh, dilution or the, the lack of uh, democratic rights that investors can ultimately have. So with that kind of framing, when it comes to settlement, now, of course, I've bought a variety of shares through brokers. I know a lot of folks that have, and it pretty much never happens where they say, you know, oh, we can't, we can't get that for you. Um, you know, in certain cases, sometimes shares aren't available for purchase because they're classified differently. That's a different subject, but it sounds as though FTDs are still a rampant issue. Um, can you maybe touch a bit more on, you know, well, where are these FTDs then? Uh, if the broker is saying, you know, they're taking the money, right? And they're incrementing your account with the security that you'd like. So what's the deal there? So the short, the short answer is 
continuous net settlement is resolving the issue without really resolving the issue. That could be as simple as somehow in their process, they're buying a share, saying that it was delivered, but it never really was. What, what you have as, as the person who bought the shares that never hadn't delivered is you just receive a marker in your account. It says you purchased this, you, you should have credit for it, but that's it. And we, this, this comes up in a later, um, in later slides, not in this presentation, but Leslie Bonney um, created a research report and basically her conclusion was that firms don't want to force other firms to buy in because they want that quid pro quo uh, treatment for them. Hmm. I gotcha. So it sounds as though it, it goes back to you know this idea of the IOU, where just because something has happened, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to reflect uh, anywhere uh, on you know in terms of when you're looking to add that the share to your own investment and see something actually take place. It may not have been at that specific moment because of that CNS system where. Uh, liquidity is king, and they're looking to advance the you know advance the ticker tape of ongoing trades more than they're looking to actually facilitate uh, you know responsible, audible delivery. Yeah, absolutely. And just to reiterate the point, just because there are rules does not mean the rules are enforced or followed, and that's yeah. really what's going on. And then to connect it to the voting issue, investors can have every impression that they should have, uh, you know, these different voting rights, or the broker may be under the impression that it should have some certain number of voting rights. But with settlement being so nebulous, uh, sometimes that can, you know, foot people can have a different impression than perhaps what the transfer agent might have on their books to administer is that uh, is that right yes that that is <clears throat> that is a hundred percent true <clears throat> and um you you of course can see it around uh the record dates but another scenario that you see that play out is bankruptcy so um i don't remember the numbers but with um bed bath and beyond um i thought like I, you'd have to jump in here, but there were like 700 million shares when there should have been a lot less. Yeah, I don't have it right in front of me either, but I think it was something like a float of 370 million maybe, and then seed yeah. had 700 I, million or something crazy. I have an example with uh, Dole, but it's the same exact thing. It's basically trades happen after the record date, and they're kind of valid trades but they're also kind of not valid shares. Because I suppose the trade might happen before the record date, and if it doesn't get recorded properly or the settlement uh, has some different qualities to it, it can cause these idiosyncrasies when it comes to when people are trying to put their books together. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, I think all of this is something folks should be thinking more about, and I really appreciate your coming with direct sources uh, from not only the SEC, but perspectives from 
different market participants, including state governments, including brokers, the transfer agents, and Broadridge, which is a proxy facilitator. Uh, I think all of these are incredible sources, and it's important to frame these conversations in a holistic way involving the perspectives of you know, market participants in every aspect of the chain. And at the end of the day, what, I'm, what I see here, uh, if I could try to put a bow on everyone's perspective, is that they all recognize there's a problem, but none of them would like to take responsibility for that problem. That's unfortunately true. And so at the end of the day, we'll have to continue making noise and drawing attention to that issue. Uh, who's to know what the best way to actually seek resolution will be? But uh, for the moment, to protect yourself, uh, of course, seek to become a record holder and legal title so that you can uh, guarantee that at least your rights are being recognized. And then, of course, we're going to continue to bang the gong and try to spread that information among more shareholders so that they, of course, can also guarantee that their rights are recognized. Awesome. I'd love to. We got it. We got several listeners here. Uh, if anyone uh, is interested to ask a question, Bibic, if you have anything else you'd like to bring up, you know, we'd love to bring someone, anyone on who has a question for Jack or about any of these great sources that uh, that he's brought to the table here, which, of course, again, are in the nest. If you would like to review those, they'll be in the show notes for you listeners in post as well. Yeah, uh, I'd also like to just shout out uh, how much I appreciate bringing all like sources for, for all of these claims, because uh, like going into today's episode, I thought, oh, yeah, great. We're going back to basics. Let's just figure out what a share is. But it's never that simple, is it? It's always a lot more complicated, a lot more obscured and a lot harder to access than like they want it, like you'd want it to be as an investor. So it's great that we can break this stuff down and simplify it. And hopefully we can continue to do that and make this whole kind of confusing landscape of lending, borrowing, excessive liquidity, naked shorting, a bit more understandable for the layman, for the, for the average investor. Um, oh, I did have a question, but it's gone now. I've had a long day. It's, it's almost my bedtime over here in England, but. Uh, you can ask me later. You can follow up. I'm happy to answer. Yeah. I mean, that goes for any of us. We're always, always open for people. We want to come and ask questions. Um, like us explaining these things to people, it helps us learn how to better communicate this stuff. It's, it's our best way of practicing. So um, we love it when we get a question and we get to answer it, especially when it's all in good faith. But even if people come at us uh, and, and at us and all of that stuff, uh, we're still happy to answer questions, get the facts out, bring you sources. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's just wild that ownership of a share is just this complex and hard to grasp. I mean, and I mean grasp in like almost a physical sense because they're not your shares. You're like, yeah, I own X amount of shares in this broker, but there's no evidence and there's no way for the broker to prove that uh, without kind of getting their books out and, and public publicizing them. Um, and I'm still not sure with, with the Ped Bath and Beyond um, document uh, that listed all the record holders and the amount of shares, like 
the having this over 700 million shares it was like practically 300 million more shares than should exist we're not sure why that was there or why it was even showing up um because when we're dealing with uh direct registration reporting and quarterly filings it's always adds up to the exact amount of shares that should exist um it doesn't get into how many shares do exist inside CD and Co. It's just we have this many record holders and they own this many shares on our books, and then CD and Co. own the rest. Um, it just, yeah. Hopefully, one day we'll get more transparency into these things. But until then, like Charles says, we're going to keep getting loud, keep banging our pots and pans, and pointing at these issues. Um, it's, uh, yeah. It's why I get out of bed most days. It's <laughs> what can I do today to shout at the establishment, try and bring more equity and parity to our markets, or even just a little bit of supply and demand. But uh, yeah, it sounds to me like with everything that's been dis- discussed tonight, that supply and demand is is a f- kind of very distant thing from our current markets. Um, like it's all it's all borrowing and having many fingers and many pockets and uh yeah there's there's i mean for americans anyway it's you guys just have the one broker to deal with it's your broker and then the dtc whereas outside of america we've got our broker then the american broker that our broker uses and then the dtc so there there are all these layers of obfuscation where we have no idea what's going on. We just have to take our broker's word for it, take their trust me bros. And as we've seen from several of the sources presented tonight, they're not as honest as they say. I mean, recently it came up, Citadel Securities being fined for marking lots of trades long when they were actually short. Um, And that's not just a matter of saying, oh, I've got $10 million. It's actually saying, oh, instead of minus $10 million, I have plus $10 million. So that's a difference of $20 million right there in that reporting. And uh, yeah, it's just another slap on the wrist, as we always see. And uh, until the, the the fine is the cost uh, or the profit that they made from, from the kind of illegal activity, we're not going to get much accountability. Um, and that's why I, I direct register. It brings the accountability forward. It brings it right now. It brings it to your corner of the world. And uh, there's no getting out of it. And, um, yeah, I just hope we can get more people directly registered and protected in these manners. And they can have their share ownership guaranteed and they can have their votes guaranteed. Uh, they will have one vote, one share um, because yeah, it doesn't exist anywhere else in, in the market. But uh, I'm just going back to our first slide. Did we get into put call parity? No. So the, those there were part of a larger presentation. So um, I think bullets three onward were just sort of big questions that we would talk to about. Those. So aging of FTDs. Uh, taxes and put call, put call parity will all come later. And then I'm going to try to reframe everything under accounting terms, which is a way we don't really um, talk about this often. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm very excited for that for that follow up conversation to continue uh, highlighting you know a, a strong citable history of the issues that we know about um, that exist in the market, and you know at the very least to begin uh, or, at least, or to continue spreading the awareness about that. So we're definitely looking forward, Jack, to uh, to digging into those you know on a future call. For sure, I mean. If uh, share ownership sounded convoluted, just wait until we get to options and derivatives. <laughs> it, it, definitely, it definitely gets more complex. I did my best to try to keep them simple and high level, but some of them are going to be tougher to grasp the first time. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I think I'm going to learn something because when I try and read about it, my brain just starts shutting off. It's like some kind of defense mechanism where it's like, there's too many big words here. You, you've you got other stuff to do. And uh, it's just, yeah, big walls of text most of the time. Um, but, and I guess, yeah, we'll get into taxes another time because another benefit of being directly registered is your dividends are taxed correctly. Uh, because sometimes when brokers don't actually own your shares, they pay you that dividend in lieu um, themselves and it gets taxed differently. So if you don't think you are being affected by, by the lending, um, you, you might actually be without even realizing it. Not to mention the fact that the, you know, the value of your stock is being diluted uh, by, by more entitlements being created than should exist. But uh, yeah, there are so many, so many little niche angles or bonuses to being directly registered. Um, I'm looking forward to yeah diving into that some more. All right, awesome. Well, it looks like we didn't have uh, community questions right here, but no worries. Feel free to reach out to you know any of us um, through online social media. Uh, you can also reach out to the site team at drsgme.org. Um, emails at the bottom or at ydrs.org. If you have any future questions, you know anytime uh, in the future from now. Uh, feel free to reach out. More than happy to help you and and those around you learn more about direct registration. Uh, thanks so much again, Jack, for your time and all your preparation today. Happy to be here. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, guys. Catch you next week. Catch you next week.